Howdy folks and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. To my Melbourne friends, I don't know about you, but there's just this incredible vibe in the air at the moment. The weather is warming up and there is just a sense of normality starting to creep back into our lives. This is just a friendly little reminder for us Melbournians out there to not forget to continue to adopt the lessons that we learned during our lockdown period. And that is a reminder that it's okay to slow down. To my overseas friends heading into winter and into another lockdown, this 2020 has been one of the most challenging years that anybody could have ever faced. But what us Melbournians know and have lived through is that great diversity brings great growth. So let's let this lockdown be a time of reflecting and a time to make change. My heart goes out to all of you though. This week's special guest is Jim Fuller, and he is the co-founder of one of the fastest up-and-coming plant-based meat companies on the market, and that's called Fable Foods. Fable are going against the grain of the quote-unquote typical mock meat brands, which more often than not feature a long list of highly processed ingredients which are not designed to be consumed each and every day. But Fable have taken a spin on the market and used shiitake mushrooms to create the base for their meat-like substitute. And for anyone out there that hasn't had Fable before, I would describe it to you as being like a traditional beef brisket that melts in your mouth. Really, really delicious. And the best part about it is that it's made from plants. Jim's story is rather unique. He has a background in mycology and you're probably thinking, what the hell is that? Well, a mycologist is a mushroom scientist and that's something I only found out weeks before recording this one with Jim. One of the most exciting things about this episode was listening to Jim explain the process of mushroom recycling and how growing and consuming mushrooms can potentially help with our climate crisis. This is mind-blowing and extremely exciting, so I can't wait to watch this space. One of the hardest challenges that all consumers face when shopping at the supermarket is understanding how to look beyond the catchy slogans used on the front of packages. We often associate catchphrases and adjectives like vegan or plant-based with being health-promoting, when in fact it's not quite as simple as that. While I do appreciate the impact that the mock meat brands are having on this movement, if we're looking at being the healthiest we can possibly be, the mock meats are best consumed in moderation due to their high amount of processing and long ingredient list. If you would like to know more about understanding food labels and looking beyond those catchy slogans, head over to episode 59 of the Euphoria Health Podcast with nutritionist Ali McLean. We unpack this complex topic in that episode. In saying that, it's extremely exciting to see companies like Fable Foods utilize real food ingredients to create tasty meat-like substitutes. While inevitably there's a little bit of processing involved, Fable stacks up extremely well compared to other mock meat alternatives, and that's why I like it. The best thing we can do to avoid the confusion in the supermarket aisles is to seek to whole foods as much as we possibly can enjoy the meat alternatives some of the time. By the way, this episode is not a paid sponsorship. I just really enjoy the Fable product and the ethos behind the brand. 
Jim, thank you so much for unpacking the world of mushrooms. You're a really fun guy. Well, on that note, I'm going to leave you with the dad joke. I'm going to walk away with my tail between my legs after that one. Happy listening, friends. I'll see you all on the other side. Jim Fuller, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. Oh, thanks, Matthew. It's great to uh, be here and, yeah, have, have the opportunity to talk about what I do. Yeah, I'm so pumped to have you on the show, Jim. I know we've been in communication for a couple of weeks now, and I'm really excited to dive into all the incredible things that you guys, you and the team are doing at Fable Foods. It's a fairly new concept, Fable, and I know we're going to dive into that a little bit later on, but basically for the listeners, can you give us a little bit of a brief overview of what Fable Foods is, if they've never heard of it before? Yeah, sure. Um, at Fable, we make a well, we recreate the experience of eating slow cooked meat, but we do it with using uh, fungi mainly. So we're uh, we're I guess uh, Fable and all the products that we're creating are super natural, minimally processed whole plant foods. Uh, yet on the other hand, we have some you know proprietary and counterintuitive methods to achieve something that replicates the experience of eating meat. Um, we have the the Fable product in the in the retail space and out in restaurants now is uh, like slow cooked or slow braised beef or like brisket, and then of course we have a we have a couple of uh, alternatives of it. You know we have more like a slow cooked pulled pork, and then we have more like a slow cooked beef brisket style. And yeah, um, it's being replicated as brisket in some places. In other places, it's being replicated as pulled pork, and then of course it's kind of out in the retail market as it's bare bones, ready for the home consumer to do whatever they normally do with like stewing meat and like stew beefs or curry beef. Uh, it really is just like a platform that people can build whatever their own cultural influence they want to put on the food. It works well as uh, American barbecue, Korean, Chinese barbecue, or, you know, lamb, uh, like curries and and uh, spit roast and things like that. Just really, it's it's built for you to layer on the flavor. I'm not saying it's flavorless. What I'm saying is it has a neutral flavor base. So yeah, it performs really well in all of the cultural styles of slow cooking meat. And every culture on the planet of Earth has a style of slow cooking meat. It's just something we've done, you know, from the dawn of time. Um, yeah, so that's what we've tried to recreate. That's what we've got out there. And uh, you can experience it probably, I think, at about 100 uh, it's on about a hundred recipe or on a hundred menus right now across Australia. Um, and we launched into Woolies uh, two or three months ago. So it's out there in Woolies, uh, I think soon to be in Coles. We just launched Ready Meals. So yeah, Fable is a company creating meat experience, but without meat using fungi as the hero ingredient. Yeah, I love that, Jim. And it's, I've really resonated with what you were saying before about the minimally processed aspect. And I think within mm. the vegan mock meat game at the moment, there is so many alternatives, which is fantastic for the environment and the animal agricultural side of things. But when we start to yeah. narrow down on our health, there's quite a lot of processing that goes into those sort of mock meat alternatives. And they're great to sort of have in moderation. But if overall health is your main goal, they're, they're not really ideal to be basing your whole diet off. So I love how we've incorporated, well, not we, 
believe you guys have incorporated mm. this aspect, utilizing whole foods and and minimally processed meat alternatives, which is going gangbusters and extremely mm. versatile, like you just stated as well. I can't wait to get into that a little bit later on in the show, Jim. So thanks for giving us a, a brief overview. It sort of paints a picture of the conversation we're about to have. I noticed That's a little right. bit of an accent in in your voice. What what was it like growing up in obviously arguably the barbecue capital of the world in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. Arguably the barbecue capital of the, of, of the States, because if, if you take that tour around and you go to Memphis, Tennessee or Alabama, anywhere in the South where, where barbecue, uh, quote unquote originated, um, everyone's going to claim the best and, you know, that's number one barbecue on the planet. (laughs) Uh, but in Texas, we take it very seriously. And because I grew up there and that is what I had available to me. Um, I do resonate more with those sort of vinegary, peppery, really mouth shocking, hot, uh, sort of more watery barbecue style um, uh, sauces in that because barbecue is really all about the sauce. Come on, you can slow cook meat, um, you know, with, with marinades or with dry rubs and all that. But then when you, when you get to the eating experience, it's all about what you do with it and the sauce is the thing. So that's where you can really compare the differences. We all put uh, the meat out on, on coals or whatever, uh, put it on, on low and slow for X amount of time. There is no real major stark differences there, but the real difference comes in, you know, what you do right after you get that, you know, thing off the, whatever it is you cooked it on and put your sauce on it. So yes, we bought, we battle over that. And, uh, I say we, uh, because I still do identify as a Texan, no matter where I go, very proud to be. Um, and yeah, I had no idea that I grew up with all that, you know, such a, an amazing thing that, that I wouldn't have anywhere else in the world. I, you know, it was just all around. And, um, I do have very fond memories of being a kid and drive through, you know, how you have, uh, drive through bottles here where you drive through and you pick up, uh, you know, a six pack or whatever, yeah. part in a beer. Um, well, we had those in Texas too, but you also get ribs and, you know, like pork ribs or beef ribs or whatever. And that's like, I, my parents would go through those drive throughs and get their alcohol and I would always get ribs, you know, you get them, you take them home in a piece of aluminum foil. Uh, and just, it's the most succulent and tasty thing, you know, ever that's, you know, I say that that's what I grew up with. And a lot of us in the South grew up with that and that's why we're so passionate about it. And this whole thing that's going on right now with barbecue in the world is so good for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely, Jim. And obviously you stated that barbecue and and meat in particular was such a big part of your upbringing and in the wider community in Texas, was it uncommon to have sort of meat alternatives as the, as the barbecue center or was it heavily revolved around meat? Well, I am 40, so I'll admit that, you know, 40 years ago, I never heard of an alternative to meat, you know, and I, when I grew up, the, uh, the weird things, because I'm out in rural Texas, and this is nowhere near the ocean, Texas is very large, uh, I grew up out in West Texas, it was, it was like a, a Permian Basin, that's where they're pulling all the oil out right now, um, but it was very desert style, a lot of sand around, um, and foods like sushi and tofu, the weirdest things you can imagine to ever, ever eat. And uh, whenever I moved out of my hometown, because I never tried those two things in that place, but I moved six hours away to San Antonio, Texas, where I ended up, you know, taking on chemical engineering schooling and my chef career started there. 
that's where I was introduced more properly to, you know, like raw seafood and sushi and, and then like meat alternatives, tofu and uh, sort of black bean patties and, and you know, it, it, soy stuff wasn't really anything more than tofu. And, and there were no like at that time, like seed analogs of things. It was just like if you were going to get a mock meat, it was a pretty ugly thing. Uh, I think <laughs> so. Yeah. Rare, rare. I think, you know, 40 years ago, I have no idea what the environment is like now. I'd love to kind of see what's going on, but I do see that people are taking it up. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. becoming more socially, like I say this in quotation marks, it's becoming more socially accepted to have a meat alternative. And almost if you're a restaurant owner, I know here in Australia, in particular Melbourne, if you don't have a vegetarian or vegan alternative on the menu, you're almost backwards. So yeah. From, from 40 yeah. years ago, it, it, we've grown so much in that space. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, I remember putting on barbecues, you know, and, and a lot of times you put on a huge barbecue and you, you don't want to provide, you know, the most expensive ingredient for everyone. If you, if you're young and on a young person's salary over there, I think I was making something like 25, $30,000 a year. So you can't necessarily do that all the time. So you get people to bring their own, you know, you bring your own burgers or your own sausages, whatever, and I'll grill it up and we sit here and drink and talk. I only ever once in that in Texas got somebody bring their own veggie patty. And uh, I, I also tasted it back then. And, and I remember thinking, man, this is probably the worst thing I've ever, you know, why would you, why would you do it? Um, so I, from that take, I never really was interested in, uh, in that sort of plant-based space until coming to Texas or sorry, coming to a, a Melbourne and sort of living out, the 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 story of my life you know uh i guess we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that but yeah it was because of what i was doing here that i really started thinking about living more plant-based or at least uh, more flexitarian style and, and even for a year i went full vegan yeah definitely yeah. melbourne is such a multicultural place and you know we've got such a diverse range of of cultures, different environments, different foods, which I think is amazing getting to experience all different cultures. And nowadays seeing how different cultures adapt the meat-free space is inspiring and it's making turning plant-based or incorporating more plant-based meals into your lifestyle so easily accessible. And, you know, flashback 10 years ago when veganism or, or plant-based eating wasn't as common, it was extremely hard for someone to start. But now there's just so much education, there's so much products and um different things that can help people along mm. their journey so i think it's an exciting space moving forward 100 percent. now jim you mentioned earlier that you got into the the chef game talk to us a little bit about how that came apart and where, how did you develop your way of thinking to incorporate more whole foods and plant-based options into your cooking you said that earlier that it, it started to come up like with the sushi and the, and the black bean burgers yeah. when did that sort of arise for you yeah well um so when i said i moved to san antonio texas i was about 19 20 years old and uh prior to that i had been working as a um a chef in a mexican food high turn and burn sort of mexican food restaurant and uh in that I worked, like I said, I was making something like 20 or $30,000 a year. That was like on a six to $7 an hour uh, position. So I was literally working 60 hour weeks in a restaurant and that, that I wanted to do it. I wanted the money. And I knew that you just, you, know, you had to work really hard to, to get money. Um, 
But in that, I, I was exposed to everything to run a kitchen business. And I thought, you know, that's great. Whenever I moved to San Antonio, lots of Mexican restaurants, lots of opportunities there. And um, I performed really well for this restaurant that I was working at. It was called Abuelos. Um, and the regional manager came to visit our, our store before I was leaving. And I told him, I'm just going to go to San Antonio, you know, uh, live, uh, move over there with uh, my then-to-be future wife. And uh, we had a restaurant that was also in San Antonio. And I asked him for the reference or, you know, should I, should I go and try to work there? And he's like, no, 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 no. You, you've developed such a good skill set here. You could do this forever and you'll never really go anywhere. I want to give you a reference to go into fine dining. And I know a few places down there I have a couple of chefs. Um, so yeah, go, go visit these. So as soon as I went to San Antonio, I got introduced to Biga on the Banks, which is uh, one of the you know top five restaurants in Texas repeatedly, like James Beard nominated award-winning kind of thing. And uh, I went to them with no culinary training other than having worked really hard in a kitchen for the last six years. And then, you know, they took me on. Uh, they said that uh, the reference that they got was so glowing that they just couldn't look past it. And 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 it wasn't long before I sort of, sort of worked all the way around the kitchen, did all the things from prep to dishwashing. And, uh, you know, in between, that really puts you in touch with everything, you know, the salads and the fish and the side dishes and the frying operations and the grilling and the oven, all of it, right? So I got a really good broad range of understanding of how to cook different styles of food and and how different types of interesting and exotic ingredients sort of act and that you can play with them to make them feel different and look and taste different. So mushrooms did grab my attention in that in that time where I was working with all those interesting and new ingredients, like I said, I saw sushi and I saw tofu, but I also saw mushrooms and, and just in, in the passing conversations that you have with your chef mates after, you know, a, a hard working day where you've just spent, you know, 12 hours, 13 hours cooking hard, then you go and rest and talk about, you know, your ambitions and things you want to do. Well, oftentimes, you know, the chefs that I was with, they were so passionate and they wanted to, to learn more about the things that they were using. So we, we broke off and we did like little sessions and, uh, you know, you go out and just study a week of, of Merlot or, or cheese of different styles or a certain ingredient. And I picked mushrooms at once. Um, and it just, they, they so fascinated me. They're not a plant. They're not an animal. They act more like animals than, than anything. So, in, you know, in, in, in relation, we're closely related to mushrooms than, than, than they are to plants. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and that works out really cool because a lot of the cell structures are different than plants, but they're not animal style. You know, they have their own sort of thing that you can play with. And, you know, that really made a difference to me. Whenever, whenever I was cooking a steak, I could cook mushrooms that would pair up with a steak. When I was cooking fish, you could cook mushrooms to pair up with a fish. Completely different style of cooking and, and restraint or boldness, you know, to, to, to throw in there. And, and, you can, and you can do that because of what is inside the mushrooms and how they're formed. And I did a lot of research on that because at the time that I was there, I was actually a chemical engineering student, full-time student, full-time working. Uh, don't know how I managed all that. Plus, I was going to the gym every day. I was rollerblading between the gym, work, and school. Uh, I was the president of the chemistry club. I also ran a tutor, uh, a tutor, uh, tutor service, and I was able to go out and, and research 
on the side of that and go take a, another job. So I look at that now and think, geez, all I do is I wake up, I do my job, I have dinner, I watch TV, you know, like, how did I do all that? <laughs> um, yeah, it was the exposure at that time that, that I knew that mushrooms were something that, that were interesting and cool. And it wasn't until, I don't know, well, until way later, whenever I actually started growing mushrooms that um, uh, I wanted to take the waste products from the mushroom farm and turn them into a food. So that's kind of, that didn't develop until probably 10 years, 10, 15 years after. Yeah, it's crazy, Jim. And that journey is, you know, so captivating. I'm interested, and I personally didn't know this until a couple of months ago, that there's actually a science that studies the biology of mushrooms in particular. And that's called, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, is that called mycology or? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. I was I was toying around with the pronunciation of that. <laughs> oh, you got it. What opened up the world of understanding the biology of mushrooms and talk to us a little bit about your experience diving deep into mushrooms. Cause you know, there's, <laughs> there's so many different mm. types out there. I'm really interested yeah. to see how that expanded your knowledge. Yeah. So at the time that I was doing full-time uh, chemical engineering training and full-time chefing, I took all the courses that you can take to become a chemical, a chemical engineer. Uh, but I was transferring to Australia waiting on a visa and I wanted to finish my, uh, my, degree here in chemical engineering. So I took all the courses that I could take, but because I was transferring to Australia and at the time, Australia wouldn't accept uh, course credits for like history and um, English and, and, and liberal arts and things like that. And that's what you needed to round out a degree in the States. Um, I couldn't finish my degree there. So I just ended up taking more sciences, more maths, more physics and things like that. And, and I and ended up taking my first biology courses because I ran out of chemistry to take. Um, and in biology, the, the professor said one day in our probably two to three day stint of looking at mushrooms in, in, in biology. So it was a broad range biology course. You looked at everything. Um, but a couple, of, a couple of days were spent looking at fungi and mycology and one passing comment um, stuck with me. And it was that there are not enough mycologists in the world. That's all the professor said. And I just thought, you know, that's an interesting thing to say. There's not enough mycologists in the world. Well, you know, when you finish school, you kind of want to look to where there's not enough of something to sort of create a difference in something. So it just stuck with me. Then uh, still waiting for my visa to move to Australia. My wife got a great job out in California and we thought, okay, well, we'll just go out to California and wait until we get my visa, then we'll move to Australia. So we did. We moved out to California. And I said, I'm not going to be a chef anymore. The hours are too hard for a young family. We had a daughter at the time. We had a son on the way. Um, so not going to be a chef. I have all this chemical engineering training. I'm going to go out and try to get a job. So I looked for a job for a few months and I couldn't find anything. They have over there something similar to what we have here, Gray's Auctions. They have Craigslist, but it's way more involved uh, it's like, you can, you can find jobs on there. You can find free things to go get. It's like want ads, uh, plus times that to infinity. Cause you can find a mate, <laughs> you know, it's like all that rolled up in one. Jim, um, I actually, I'll stop you there. I actually thought Craigslist, I've heard of that before from American shows. Yeah. I thought that was a dating site. So it's, it's almost like seek in Melbourne. Which yeah, is like a absolutely. Job it's a, it's a combination of seek eHarmony, uh, uh, Gray's auction. It is like the best site to find anything you want. And what a fantastic you can go idea. And solic- you can solicit anything you want. So yeah. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry. 
Yeah. So I, I looked on Craigslist for a job and I couldn't find anything. But then one day something came up, uh, spawn supervisor for a mushroom farm. That's all it said. I thought that sounds cool. And I went up, it was about a 30 minute drive from where we were living in the most expensive uh, suburb in all of the United States called Novato, California. It was in the North Bay area of San Francisco. 30 minutes more north to Santa Rosa, California. Near there, there's a little town called Sebastopol where they have a, a, a farm called Gore Mushrooms. Went up there. They loved my science background. Uh, they loved the fact that I knew the mushrooms from playing with them uh, in, in the cooking space, but not have any like um, taint to my understanding of how to grow things because they were dealing with you know growers who had their own sort of methods and ideas of what mushrooms should be. And I didn't know anything about the growing. I just knew about the chemistry and I knew about the function as a food. So they put me in, in this spawn supervisor position, just so happened to, to have a house on the farm that came with the job. So I moved from that most expensive suburb where we were paying crazy amounts of rent up to Sebastopol, where it was part of the job, living on what I call God's green earth. So amazing there. It's right in the Sonoma Valley where they produce all this wine, lots of green rolling hills, lots of apple orchards and vineyards and all that kind of stuff. So my weekly or my daily ride to work was through an apple orchard. Um, you see, yeah, I, I got introduced to growing mushrooms there. And I sort of fell in love in, because spawn supervisor put me in a position where I could see the entire function of the farm from raw material inputs. Spawn is the seed of mushrooms. So we're actually producing the seed in-house that we then went on to cultivate into the production units that grew the mushrooms like carpets in the, in the growing rooms. And they had all these Excel spreadsheets that sort of related to every area, you know, raw, raw material input, spawn creation, all the stuff there. And then how much spawn you put out onto the, the production stuff when it was produced X, Y, Z. So I saw everything to run and operate a mushroom farm. And we didn't only grow culinary mushrooms there. So we grew, we grew, I think, six different types of culinary mushrooms at the time that included like King Oyster and Namiko um, and Blue Oysters and, and another thing called Clamshell, uh, things like that. And then we had, a, I think we had a, um, a catalog of about 47 different nutraceutical species. And nutraceutical is medicinal type mushrooms. So we didn't grow those out for mushrooms. We grew them for the mycelium and the um, the properties that the mycelium has that you could then turn into a raw material that you put into a supplement or, or whatever. We, we, we grew that on the farm. So I got exposed to all that, how to make it, how to control it, how to operate it. And being in the North Bay area of San Francisco, it rains like nine months out of the year. Like I said, green rolling hills, lots of forested area, obviously lots of fungi around and lots of knowledge of fungi around. So I wasn't just growing them. Um, I, I fell in love with the hobby of them to go out and find them, know that this one can kill you, but, but this one can cure this disease, or this one is, you know, a dinner plate sized mushroom that you can feed a family, um, you know, and, and I got really interested in, in stating the, uh, the scientific binomials, you know, getting into the taxonomy of it all. And there's, it really speaks to the, I think the, the, primitive hunter gatherer in us that we we walk along in the dappled light of the forest smelling the smells and you can see something that you know because of you are aware of the relationship you know the tree has a specific relationship with certain types of mushrooms and we can expect them to be in certain places at certain times of the year you can go and you can find that you can pick it you can look at it take photos of it and put a name to it 
that's something very satisfying down to like the core level of, of our, you know, evolved state of being a human, just being able to, to go out and do that. And, and also to then put them to use because mushrooms are used for food and materials. You can carry it. Well, there are lots of stories about what mushrooms can do, but they can be used as food and materials and medicine. Um, you know, I, I just had my cosmic moment where my brain said, aha, <laughs> this is what I'm doing forever. Uh, it's, it's so, so crazy, yeah. isn't it? The, the power yeah. of mushrooms and how versatile they are. And it's gaining a lot of momentum these days. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that, that led me into the rest of my life. So whenever I eventually got my visa to move to Australia, that was two years after in California. So it wasn't a short stay. Um, and getting a visa back at the time was very difficult, uh, very expensive. And it was really hard, even though I had an Australian partner. Um, but anyway, after four years or six years or however much you want to say of me trying to get that visa, I got it, moved over here and said, OK, I'm no longer a chef. Uh, I'm no longer a chemical engineering guy. I am a mushroom guy. So I'm going to start a mushroom farm. But at the same time, I do want to finish my degree because I put all that effort into it. So I went to University of Melbourne. Uh, I was accepted into chemical engineering there. But Jesus, when I got there, there were so many people and so much competition and knowing in the back of my head, you know, there are not enough mycologists in the world. I don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. So I was walking out and I was thinking, I got to rethink all this. I just want to do mycology. Uh, as I was walking out, I walked through the ag school, um, the ag school there at the time, food and agriculture at University of Melbourne, really chillax, just hanging out, sitting on coolers, drinking, drinking beers and having a barbecue. And I thought, this is way more my style. I like this. I wonder, because there's no equivalent of a mycology course that you could even take anywhere in Melbourne. Um, I'd have to move to Sydney to do anything with mushrooms. So as I was walking out, I'm thinking, this is agriculture school. They have agricultural science program. I sat down and I chatted with the dean of the agricultural school who was drinking a beer, who offered me a beer. We had a debate over what barbecue is and that Australians don't do barbecue. They do grilling. Um, and I could teach them how to all that stuff. And immediately I was like, okay, yep, I'm doing agricultural science. So a couple of years in with all my transferred credits, I did agricultural science, bachelor of agricultural science, graduated in 2009. Um, so then I finally finished all that. Now I can, I can apply all of that knowledge to a mushroom farm uh, that I was, I was growing mushrooms out in the, <laughs> the shed, a 10 square meter tin shed in the back of my father-in-law's property because we were, we were living with them the entire time that we were, I was going to school, eventually got a house. But growing the mushrooms out there, selling them into the fruit and veg wholesale market here in Melbourne. And I was growing like 30 kilos a week, which is a little bit more than say a hobby level. It's like an experienced hobbyist level. And I, I created a bit of a following there. So as soon as I graduated, I said, I'm gonna grow mushrooms big time. I'm gonna do this thing big. So with all my planning, I could sell 300 kilos a week easy to the relationships that I had made, all of that. And I was going to go overseas to get the equipment to do that. And I got a call from a guy in Shepparton who does fruit and, or he does apples and pears. And he's got all these apple and pear sort of storage rooms up in Shepparton. And those are great for controlled environments. You can completely control the climate down to a degree. You can, or within a, a 0.01 of a degree, um, you can introduce gases, you know, make sure you got your CO2s and your oxygen right. I mean, it was amazing because he said, I want to grow mushrooms here. 
and went and looked at his property. And with that, all that, uh, all that infrastructure, we could have grown 10 tons a week of mushrooms. And I was just literally thinking how much money we were going to be rolling in because I have all this knowledge of how to operate a mushroom farm that can grow 10 or 20 tons of mushrooms a week. So let's do this thing. He was the, you know, apple and pear. So he's been in his third generation fruit and veg. He's going to be able to sell all this stuff. That's great. I'll just grow a bunch of it. And we set out to grow, I think, originally four tons a week. And I had a six-week plan to ramp up from a ton a week to do that. And yeah, that's where all kind of the wheels just kind of came off. We, we grew the ton <laughs> and we packed the ton and we sold only 300 kilos. You know, I had originally said I was going to sell 300 kilos, but I, I couldn't sell the rest of it. And he couldn't either because he was an apple and pear guy. He didn't have the relationships in mushrooms. And it kind of sucked because, you know, four weeks worth of mushrooms were already in the pipeline. We're going to have more than that next week and more than that next week. We ended up throwing out way more than we sold. I didn't realize that money came on contract basis here and that uh, you supplied basically mushrooms with no money coming in for sometimes up to 90 days. So I, I just experienced a money funnel. It, it, unfortunately, I was on the wrong end of the money funnel and it just went all the other direction. All the mushrooms, uh, well, most of the mushrooms never saw the light of day uh, because they got thrown away in the room because we just couldn't pack them and sell them. Um, or we did, we ended up packing them in the room and then we got rid of the things that we packed the week before. So it was, a, it was a, a, just a devastating blow to my confidence, to everything about you know running a business and growing mushrooms. I said, I'm never gonna do this again. Thank God I have agricultural science and chef background. And you mentioned uh, Seek um, before, Seek, seek.com. Yeah. And at the time, the, the programs on, on or, you know, the advertisements on the programs were, if the job exists, it will be on seek. OK, well, I got to go out to seek because I got to find a job. And uh, I got on seek and I found a job for a spawn supervisor at a mushroom farm. And it was literally 20 minutes from my brand new house with my brand new mortgage. Um. And it was all drive through the country, the largest mushroom farm in the Southern Hemisphere. They grew agaricus mushrooms, which are the white button pizza mushrooms. But that doesn't matter because the spawn part of the knowledge transfers perfectly. And whenever I replied to that ad, they uh, responded within minutes and thinking that I had made everything up. You know, they didn't expect to find anyone related to spawn. There's only two spawn uh, makers in Australia. One's 20 minutes from my house now, and the other one's up in Sydney. Um, so they expected no one from the talent pool. There is no talent pool. There's no one with that expertise. They're expecting somebody to come over from, you know, veggies or something. So whenever they saw, I had the history of working with Spawn and new mushrooms, and I went in to interview with them. I got, you know, they came back with an offer, like sort of five grand above what the original offer that they put on the paper was because they were like, yeah, you can't, can't miss that opportunity. And for me, I was basically on my knees begging for a job. So I couldn't miss that opportunity. <laughs> it didn't really matter what the job was. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up for the next three years working as a, you know, the second in charge of the spawn lab, which was running with like Cadillac of technologies um, here, uh, the technology developed in the States to grow. <laughs> we grew 20 tons of spawn a week for that, that, that translated to, I think, 600, 700. No, because we supplied all of the industry. 
that, that was about 800 tons of mushrooms a week that we were growing out of that spawn. So, I mean, it was massive, massive operation. Australia uh, consumed about 1,200 tons a week. So we were, we were producing most of it. That's insane to think like that, you know? So the two, the two spawn farms sort of run all of that here in Australia. And I, well, I was working on one that supplied more than half of it. So did that for three years. Uh, got, my, got my sort of soul back thinking I'm going to do something with mushrooms now. Um, so I wanted to start a mushroom farm. I went out to the guy that I was selling all my mushrooms to back in the days whenever I was going to school. You know, those 30 kilos that I was growing a week out of my 10 shed. I uh, went to him and said, I want to start a mushroom farm. And he wanted to start a mushroom farm. So that was our, that was our new idea. We wanted to start a mushroom farm. So I came to work for him as a manager of his mushroom wholesale business. And I ended up doing that for the next five years of my life. And I don't know, do you know the uh, Melbourne fruit and veg wholesale market? They operate overnight. It's where they, you know, all the gang stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. What, that's, that is what it's known for, I think. And whenever we first came to Australia, I was told never go in that place. It's a dangerous <laughs> place. And it just so happened, you know, that's where I was selling my mushrooms to uh, originally. And that's where I went to work for five years. And, it, you know, it's, it's nothing like what people say. I'm sure, you know, a dodgy thing can be pulled out of any industry anywhere. But I never saw any of that stuff. It, it was really a wholesome family-based thing. Lots of families there. I think that's where the tie to sort of, you know, uh, family crime and things like that is. But they, I never saw any of that. It was, it was actually a really great, interesting, vibrating place to be. It just sucked. Because it started at 3 a.m., you know, <laughs> and it ended at 8. Uh, so you had to go to work every day from 11 p.m. And, and then sleep during the day. It was awful for the body. In the five years that I worked there, I'm sure that I aged 15 years. But it put me in contact with a whole bunch of the industry that I didn't know about, you know, whenever I went and failed in my first job, uh, my first uh, business growing mushrooms in a big way. It was because I didn't understand the market. So at this I got the full rounding of it. I had the growing, I had the, the science, I had the production. Um, now I had the marketing part of it. Uh, and we never got that mushroom farm off the ground. It never, you know, we planned it for every year. I was only supposed to be there for six months, then a, then a year we were doing the farm. Just never happened. Unfortunately, never happened. So at one point I said, I got to get out of this to the guy I was working with. And, you know, it, it just never eventuated. So he's like, okay, I get you you know, go do whatever you do. So I changed my status on LinkedIn uh, to looking. And, you know, within a day or so, I had a couple of offers. And one just happened to be on an organic mushroom farm. They wanted to start a, an exotic mushroom farm. So all my skills translated really well to that. Um, they pulled me in. That was great. That was 2019. And that was with the co-founder. So if you, uh, Fable is founded by three people, myself, um, a vegetarian up in Queensland named Michael Fox. And the third one is Chris McLaughlin. And he was the owner of that organic mushroom farm called Mycelia Organics. And they wanted to start up that whole thing. So that's where I got introduced to Chris and where we started working together. I was working for him. Um, but the problem is for the last four years, the mushroom market had been very stable and increasing. And the, the day basically that I took the job there, mushrooms tanked and they didn't have all that extra cash that they were expecting to have for an exotic mushroom farm to be growing. So I was working at a, an agaricus mushroom farm with no real exotic production, no real spawn production. 
we had to figure out what, what I could do. So applying my chef skills, applying my chemistry skills, I went and dug through all their trash and it would be, you would be really um, interested to know how much food is just never seen because it gets trimmed off of the mushroom at picking because it's not retail. If it's not retail grade, it's not retail spec. If you supply all of the food in the packet. Um, so they cut off the stems. So the stems can be, you know, sometimes three, four inches, uh, say inches, uh, hundred centimeters long in, in some cases, hundred centimeters, hundred millimeters long, 10 centimeters. Sorry. The, the conversion in, in inches and feet is why I no longer remember inches and feet. I, I never use that. I don't even know why I said three inches just in, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, they have all of that length, but the only allowable length of stem, if you're going to put it into a packet for retail, and retail is the largest outlet, is the only real outlet for mushrooms. The rest of the stuff, to food service. So it's just, I mean, it's 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 nice to have, but the real market's retail. So they have to be pretty. They have to be white. They can't be bruised. They can't be broken. All that stuff. Any of that stuff that's weird and misshapen kind of gets thrown off the food service or gotten rid of, unfortunately. But the stems account to sometimes up to 20% of the mass. Um, and they, the only reason that they can't just be instantly turned into food is because it grows at the surface of uh, the growing beds, which the very top layer, the top, say, 50 mil, is a peat moss. It has no nutrient in it. It's only, it's only a water-holding layer. It's, it's in there to trick the mushrooms from a really high nutrient source that they're growing in up into this very low nutrient source at the surface, then you got a lot of water and it sort of mimics fall uh, autumn conditions. So they think, okay, it's time to produce spores. So they grow a mushroom and drop spore. Um, so the thing is that that stem is attached very, very intertwined at, the, uh, at that level. So probably the bottom two centimeters of any stem, given that it's up to 10 centimeters sometime, is not usable. It's got peat moss, it's got rocks, it's got dirt. So, and you can't just clean that stuff off easily. So that's what I spent a lot of my time doing is figuring out how to clean that stuff off and recapture those agaricus button mushroom stems and to turn those into something. And that is sort of the birth of turning mushrooms for what their structure and their cell mass and, and their cell components is into a meaty type feeling a meaty type tasting, you know, recreating the taste and texture experience of eating meat. And I had a deep dive on that for really about three to four months. And then we realized this has legs. This is something amazing. So me and Chris decided we're going to go and turn mushroom-based meat into a thing. Um, and it just so happened that when we went out for funding <laughs> that uh, the, the investment parties, they were all pushing us to go talk to this other guy in the space that ended up being Michael Fox, our third co-founder. He was a long way along the commercial path of making fungi into a meat-based uh, product. And uh, he had done a lot of the things. He had even got a couple of customers lined up and his product was very different and complementary to us, me and Chris. So we set aside a, a period of time one day to meet up with him, even though he could have been a major competitor. We said, we'll go and have coffee in the morning. We'll just set aside the rest of the day in case it's cool. Otherwise, we go our merry way and we had coffee and lunch or whatever. We met, had coffee, lunch. We ended up hanging out the rest of the day. 
we talked about the hero's journey of mushrooms and, and we all kind of just had the initial spark of, I, I don't know, the equivalent of falling in love, but in business. Um, and, and we walked away from that with a very positive feeling. And it wasn't only a week or two later that we said, yes, we are going to marry each other in business terms and start a thing. And that's whenever Fable was born. So that was October last year. Well, uh, officially October last year, but you know, we worked together say from August, but the Fable name and the incorporation and all that, the company, the birth um, started in October and we started selling products, I think in <laughs> November. Uh, so it was like a ramp up, unbelievable. Uh, we had a product basically almost ready. We all just kind of tweaked it, made the best thing that we, that we could imagine and then lined up a pipeline of things to come um, the first stuff went out in Marley Spoon in November. We officially launched the product in Dinner by Heston. And there, there's a story there with Heston. Um, but in Dinner by Heston, and if you're familiar with Heston Blumenthal, his restaurant, which is no longer open anymore, um, but it, we launched it. And that's sort of like this super uh, high fine dining, scientific chefery wizard <laughs> guy uh, we went and launched the product with him in, in melbourne and his chefs created these amazing things and straight from all, all the way from snail porridge to 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 ice cream with fable caramel <laughs> uh, just that's kind of what they do and, and, and that's it's just been an amazing ride since then so that's sort of my my ride of getting into food uh from mushrooms and getting into turning them into a meat um you know, meat analog. And that's, yeah, I guess that uh, went from here to here in a long, big story. And there are so many stories wrapped up in the middle of it, but yeah, I hope I answered your question. Well, yeah, definitely. And some as well, Jim, that's incredible. The, the journey that you've been on and the collation of experiences that, you know, you've had to adapt to your lifestyle. I just want to take you back a little bit to the mushroom farm. I want to talk a little bit more about mushrooms and their specific types and cultivating yeah. an environment where they can grow. Firstly, how do we cultivate an environment that mushrooms can grow? Is it as simple as just creating bacteria and water? Talk to us a bit about that. Okay. Well, um, there's kind of three things to consider. Well, there's three types of mushrooms that you can consider doing such a thing with. Um, so I'll, I'll just briefly state each one of them. There is the parasite, which you would be familiar with the parasite type fungus because it, you know, it takes over a living organism, um, and it is no good for them. So the parasitic fungus aren't one that people necessarily would ever think to want to grow, but I'll tell you one that, that people would love to grow. But the reason that people wouldn't think to grow it is because the parasitic fungus is the type that grows like on your toenails or, you know, it's a lower class of fungi, but there is a much higher and the most expensive mushroom ingredient in, in the world is actually a parasite-based fungus called cordyceps. Have you ever heard of cordyceps? I have, yes. Yeah. So people have been trying for a really long time to cultivate cordyceps and only, you know, in the last sort of 10, 15 years, they kind of got the ability to do so. And cordyceps tea and cordyceps soups and all the kind of stuff, it, it's amazing for oxygen uptake in your blood and all of that, but it requires a very specific type of growing and it, and it is very related to being a parasite. Um, I got lots of stories about cordyceps, but I won't digress into those. Um, 
there's another type. So parasite is one, put that aside. That's not anything that we're going to consider growing. Then there's another type called mycorrhizal. And just like being a mycologist is the study of fungi, mycorrhizal, myco is the, uh, the, the root name for mushroom. And the part of the relationship there is myco and rhizal. So rhizal is the plant root and it's actually the root of a plant. So mycorrhizal mushrooms grow with a plant. So you have to cultivate the plant to grow, to cultivate the mushroom. This is important for truffle type mushrooms or um, porcinis or chanterelles, any of the ones that are really expensive and only grow in a certain portion of the year. If you're gonna try to cultivate those, you have to cultivate the tree and the farm and all of that. So put those aside because that's not necessarily accessible to everyone. And you talk about the third class of mushrooms is called a saprophyte. A saprophyte grows on dead and decaying organic material. So these are nature's recyclers. They're the ones that, you know, when a tree falls off a branch, uh, a branch falls off a tree in the forest, the reason why you're walking through a forest that's not piled on my high, a mile high with branches is because fungi got a hold of it. As soon as it broke off, then the fungi, they didn't kill the tree. The tree broke in its own way and they would never kill the tree because they don't, they don't uh, fight against any of the tree's defenses. They just grow on the dead and decaying organic matter. So that is the kind of mushrooms that you can replicate in a farm setting. So we talk about agaricus style mushrooms. Those are a button type. And then there's every other type of mushroom. So buttons are very interesting because they grow on compost. So they're not necessarily what we would call a primary uh, recycler. They're sort of a secondary or a tertiary recycler. Uh, I'll talk about the primaries and then come back to the agaricus. So a primary one would be like the one that's actually growing on a fallen tree. You wouldn't walk along the forest and find a button mushroom growing on a tree because it's not a composted thing. It's a tree. You'll find things like shiitake, oyster, uh, all the wood loving species of mushrooms. So those are the ones where you could very easily just take sawdust, sterilize it to take away all the competition and then introduce spawn. So that's like those two jobs that I had as a spawn maker, we grew the seed, you introduce spawn. Spawn is essentially like genetic clones. You take the ideal mushroom, you find a mushroom in the wild, you take an ideal mushroom and you open it up, take a bit of tissue, and in a sterile environment, this is very like lab condition, hospital grade. You take a sterile piece of that tissue and put it into agar, which is like a jelly-like substance that has nutrition in it. And you can watch the fibers just spread out and grow. That's called mycelium. And that mycelium, you can look and you can grade the health of it. You can take a, you, all it takes is one cell. You can take one cell of it and move that into a, uh, uh, a substrate. That's the stuff that it grows on of its, of its choosing. So if, if it's a wood loving mushroom, you'd put it onto a wood. So you take, uh, you know, at least one cell, but you take a little section of this jelly and then put it into some sterilized substrate. And then you can watch that mycelium grow through the substrate and you can observe the health of it. As long as it's in a, you know, a, a transparent container like glass or plastic, um, you can watch the, and watch the mycelium grow. You could take that bag of mycelium or that bottle of mycelium, open up the top of it. Once it's fully grown, scratch it, put a little water, put it in the right conditions and a mushroom will grow. You just have to mimic what would happen in the forest? You know, you got dappled light, you got high humidity. You must make sure that the that the humidity is there because that's whenever it knows that my spores will survive if I produce them now. So my spore producing structure, I can start growing. And they're very smart. They're a very smart uh, networking style um, uh, 
organism. They take information from everywhere. They have a rolling stock of everything that their mycelium is touching. And they can allocate resources in, in, in moments of time and say, okay, that is where there is humidity. That is where there's oxygen. So we're going to take all of our resources and supply them into what is going to be the, the spread of our organism. So we're going to produce that. So that's how you, what, that, that's a, that is what you can replicate in a farm. You take that bag of spawn and you can multiply that bag of spawn out exponentially. Let, let's just take it to a number and say one bag can become a hundred bags. And those 100 bags can then be used to grow mushrooms or they can actually be used to grow a hundred more bags each. It's just an, expon an exponential thing. As long as you take care of the, the sterility of the substrate, you know, that takes autoclaving, high pressure and temperature and that sort of stuff. So you get farms that grow mushrooms out of bottles. And those are, they, they're like really like machine style. You can feed a tray of 16 bottles, rows of four by four into a machine that will then fill it with a mixed substrate of wood and then some nitrogen sources, depending on what the fungi is, but it likes to be like grain hulls and corn cobs. We really are recycling the things that are wasted from the environment. You know, they fall on the floor and a fungi will take over. But we collect those and, and you eat wheat and pasta and bread, the stems from the wheat, the hulls from the wheat, all the stuff that you can eat, we can put into the mushroom substrate. So you got to put it into a mushroom. Uh, sorry, put those bottles into a machine. The machine fills those bottles. Um, then they put caps that breathe on those bottles, then you can stack those trays up and it's sturdy as you go, you go into factories that do this. And I call them factories because it's like a factory. You put these trays through a machine, fills up the bottle, puts the lid on the tray, stacks up the tray. You can then feed those whole pallets of trays into large autoclaves, steam sterilize all that. Then you go into a laboratory condition where you've got in your laboratory, you feed those trays into another machine that has spawn inside of it. <laughs> You got a spawn technician there very carefully putting spawn in the machine and the machine will carefully lift the lids. It'll drop the spawn into the jar and put the lids back. Then you go and you stack these things up in what is like a factory. It's just a big shed that all you need to do is control the temperature, like say 23 C and you're happily growing mushrooms, mycelium in all of these jars. And you can literally have, warehouses full of these things it just depends on how many you want to grow and you can kind of keep them in that period for as long as you want you can then take them change their season so in this case you're putting them through the like the summery season where it's warm and they're in the log uh, they're staying away from the outside environment because it's too dry but then you go and change everything for them so you feed them through another machine that lifts off the cap scrapes a little off the top sprays in some water then you take them and put them into a nice, cool, misty, humid environment. And remember when I said carpets of mushrooms that grow? They, it's just like clockwork. So this whole mechanized system, you get mushrooms like clockwork out of it and you get carpets of them. You walk into a mushroom fruiting room and you can see them at the different stages. And literally you can just walk through there and very easily just pick, 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 pick. And the best pickers could pick up to like 30 kilos an hour. Uh, yeah, just that that's one way to do it. Then you talk about the agaricus mushroom. So whenever I say uh, primary and uh, secondary or tertiary recycler, those that we talked about growing on wood, we took wood from an environment, sterilized it, and we grew mushrooms on it. The agaricus mushrooms is very different. So we have to actually, they originally were cultivated in limestone caves in France on horse manure. And that's why people, you know, uh, uh, 
they say they if they treat you like a mushroom they keep you in the dark and they feed you bull i don't know if you can curse on your your podcast but they feed you bull crap um that's what they say about this because that's what they actually originated growing them on growing growing them on on uh, horse manure but we now grow them on wheat straw usually with a bit of supplement of nitrogen uh, from a chicken manure or some other sort of sources, a small component, gypsum and water. Um, they put those in rows outside and literally the farm that I worked on in Mernda went through 15,000 tons of straw per week to grow that 500 tons of mushrooms on that one farm. It's, it, it's um, an astounding amount. But what they did was they put the straw out there uh, wet it with, they call it goody water. They, and that's all the bacteria and stuff that sort of starts the, the decomposition. So that's where you were talking about. Do you just put them in with bacteria? You don't necessarily put them in with bacteria. What you do is you dunk those straw bales in the bacteria water. Then you let them sit for a few days. Then you turn them over and you keep turning them over and you get good compost in a couple of weeks. It's nice, dark, rich, like humic, very lovely. Uh, at this time, it's not the greatest of smell, but it's getting there. Um, that, but you know, if you can imagine a composting yard that's got 15,000 tons each week of compost, they, that entire town. Um, have you ever been up to Nagambi, um, Lake Nagambi? I personally haven't been, no. Okay, well, this is why if you ever go up there and smell an awful smell, <laughs> this is why Nagambi smells, is because <laughs> that compost yard is not that far away from Nagambi. So a lot of people who go up there as holiday makers or whatever, if there's just that little tinge of terrible smell in the air, that's because there's a lot of composting going on. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> but they truck that compost down, and then what they do is they pasteurize it. So all those original bacteria sort of get killed off, but then the thermophilic ones will sort of live and consume what those other bacteria left behind. And over a week, the bacteria or the uh, biological energy will go up, 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 and then it'll tail off because they've run out of food. But what they did, and as it cools off, was they created the perfect selective substrate for agaricus mushrooms to grow on. So in agaricus mushrooms, after you've done all that process, which takes literally three weeks, then you can take it and in open air, you can put in mushroom spawn. Whereas the other ones that have to be very sterile because it's primary, it's never been decomposed. And there are lots of competitors that would love to decompose it. Then lots of molds in the air and, and, you know, XYZ would love to get in there and grow on that wood. So you have to be very careful with the primaries, but with these tertiaries, they've been through everything. They've already been composted. Everything's been through there. The only thing left for, uh, for food is for these particular types of mushrooms. So you put that in there and then in another two weeks, they're fully myceliated. Mycelium is fully grown through it and turned it from a black, rich, beautiful smelling substrate to a very mushroomy, fresh sort of uh, musky type smell. And it's ready to go. You put a casing layer and that's that, that non-nutritive layer that I talked about before. You put that on top. That fools it into thinking, okay, there's a lot of rain and there's no nutrient. Let's make mushrooms. And yeah, so that's how you would do it. <laughs> That's incredible. And essentially, like the mushrooms, the you're using the byproducts of other things. So it's very eco-friendly and, and oh, ethical, yeah. Yeah. which is yeah, amazing. And it, it opens up this whole realm of, because obviously we're going through, there's so much demand for things in the world at the moment. And 
we can't keep up with the the demand for food, obviously, because of the mm. production. So utilizing yeah. the waste that we have yep. to recuperate into food and, and different yep. products. I know there's like you can make leather out of mushrooms. So this could be yep. the way of the future, which is super exciting. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely, this is the way to make food from waste. You are upcycling and there are so many bits along the way to get all the way back in a circular sort of economy to upcycle at every step. And that is an inclusion of everything you can imagine. Bacteria, algae, bring in fish, bring in plants. You get all the way back. You can absolutely do it. Incredible, Jim. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching this space in the future. And it's obviously progressed so much since, since you know, this realm has been identified. So yeah, it's exciting times. I'm interested, Jim, diving back into the, the Fable operation. Yep. It could have been so easy for you guys to incorporate animal products into the, the mix. Why did mm. you decide to make this completely plant-based and, and vegan friendly? And, and when did that sort of creep into your life, the, the veganism component and the plant-based component as well? Yeah, I'll talk about it in the reverse that you questioned it because that's exactly how it worked for us. Um, I became um, fully plant-based for a whole year um, after, of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of these, uh, documentaries and things, they make you take a look at, you know, what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. But that wasn't necessarily the documentaries that, that, that did it for me. That just kind of tipped me over the edge because I was living and selling a lifestyle of, we are starting a mushroom farm for all of these right reasons. The ones that never eventuated where I was working for five years in the fruit and veg wholesale market, but I was really trying hard to start a mushroom farm. So living the life day to day saying, this is why mushroom farm is great. It recycles everything. It is a sustainable thing for ecology, economy, everything. It is the right thing to be doing. And then I'd come home and I'd have a barbecue and, or, you know, I'd, I'd eat burgers or meat or something like that. And, and just sort of the inner conflict um, at the time was, you know, it didn't work out for me, I guess you could say. I just, at that point, I was like, I have to stop being hypocritical because I say I want to do these things for mushrooms uh, that mushrooms can do for the world, but I go home and I don't live it. So I that just put me over the edge and I said, you know what, I'm just going to, just going to do it. I'm just going to stop eating meat and meat products, uh, dairy, all of it, eggs, milk, gone. Uh, and I'm going to do this for a month. You know, and see how I go. They tell you it was the worst experience that I've ever had feeling after eating and and then like for two weeks i just felt so terrible i felt awful i i got whatever they call the flu is or something like that but you know at at the two-week point i didn't give up i said i'm gonna still do this for the month but man i hope the whole month isn't like that but in week three it started feeling the greatest i've ever felt and i said okay we've ridden through that <laughs> we've got through that and and working in the fruit and veg wholesale market i had a plethora of fresh great whole uh, whole food plant ingredients. And I was living the greatest life, eating and creating such interesting things. Fortunately, I had a friend do this with me at the time, which really helped. Uh, made it through the month and said, I'm never going to do this roller coaster ride. I'm never going to stop and start doing this. So I'm going to have to ride this out for as long as I can. And maybe I'll just do this forever. I don't know. Um, I, got, I said, oh, I'm going to take it to three months. So I took it to three months and I got there. Boom. I felt great took it to six months and I started getting a little bit 
mm, lazy on food preparation, you know, and started eating a lot more starches instead of the lots of different colors. Um, but it was around month eight that we took a, a trip back home uh, to Texas and all over the U.S. And huh, I, I, as much as I was happy living the life of, of being a, a plant-based person, you get back home and when you're at home, the elements of, of what you grew up with, it's, it's irresistible. I felt like I was torturing myself. And then I thought, who am I doing this for? I'm doing it for me, right? So it doesn't really matter if I eat meat and then decide not to eat meat later. It's just if I go through that roller coaster, I don't want to do it, that roller coaster feeling. And I felt so great after eating meat. And then actually I, I said, I'm going to do this while I'm in, while I'm in the States, I'm going to eat barbecue because I love it and I can't get it anywhere. And that is, that's what I'm going to do. Came back to Australia and I took a, an approach that I said, I'm going to do this for the rest of the 12 months. I'm going to get, you know, finish out the 12 months being fully plant-based, but it's, it's clear to me that I have a very intimate uh, connection and it's something that, that I love. I'm very passionate about how you prepare barbecue, uh, you know? So, I mean, removing that from my life was actually, I feel uh, personally uh, a step down. So whenever the year finished, I said, I am going to continue with what we are calling now flexitarianism or reductionism, uh, reductitarian. I don't know all those, all those terms. I'm going to reduce my, uh, dependence on me. I'm going to treat it as if it is a treat, um, and, and not have it all the time sort of thing. So that's kind of where my approach to the veganism went and why I'm now back in the space of, I consume as much fable as I can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and anytime that there's a plant-based option that, that's that looks nice or it's not like a really overly processed thing and and now that i'm in the space i kind of know which ones are heavily processed and heavily like not fully whole food stuff it's just a whole bunch of glue holding things together um again i won't go for those because they're not tempting but if i get a great sort of uh variety of vegetables presented in a lovely way absolutely that's what i'm going for I love that um, point there, Jim, and I think it's really relevant yeah. for people out there that often we we in the vegan community and in the plant-based community are our own worst worst enemies and we strive for perfectionism and we're striving to have this world that is that is vegan, which is potentially not possible. So from a an ethical standpoint and creating more sustainable change and having a larger impact reduction is the way to go. And if you can reduce, if everybody in the planet can reduce their reliance and intake of animal products, the impact that we're going to have is huge. So I'm a huge fan of reduction. And if you can go plant-based, I have an eye on that works for you. Fantastic. Go for it. But the one thing that we all agree on in the health fitness realm, whatever, sort of realm that you're in is that fruits and vegetables are healthy. So let's incorporate them more. Yeah. hundred percent. So I, we, we definitely take that view at Fable. Um, I say we're not a vegan company, but we are very vegan friendly um, because everything we do is vegan. Everything that we do is trying to achieve that whole food, minimal process thing. But I, I think, you know, if it, if it were actually a vegan company, it would have vegan founders and everything that it did would be vegan. So I can't say that we're that, but I can say that our product is fully vegan, fully vegan friendly. Everything that we produce is going to be vegan and vegan friendly. Um, but we don't want to 
push away that that massive amount of people that we want doing exactly what you just said, helping us reduce everybody's reliance on on animal based meat and and you know this what we want really you think about it in all the terms of all of those uh those documentaries and things like that they they they, they scare you and i don't think people should be scared going you know forward i think we should look at at you know we're trying to make a product that will can re- recreate the entire experience of eating meat when it's done right um when it's treated in the same way it tastes and feels just like a meat so we want to recreate that experience for people who like eating meat and then you know like you said whatever whatever it is that you want to do reduction is the way sort of to get a less of a dependence on what is the, the worst thing that we could all imagine is that industrial animal agriculture which you know no one wants to be treated that way uh, <laughs> so yeah don't yeah our 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 look is positive what at fable we produce that very vegan friendly it's always going to be a product that is friendly uh, and whole food minimally as possible processed um, ingredients. And, and of course, we do like to stick with our hero ingredient being the mushroom. That whole marketing thing around plant-based, we are really are fungi-based. <laughs> and I'm a purist. I'm a mycologist. I, I I come from a, a mushroom background, so I want to scream from the rooftops that we're fungi-based, but that whole, the whole marketing thing is, you know, this is a plant-based thing. And we do have lots of plant inclusions in our food, so it, it, we are a plant-based product. I, I'll, I'll accept that for now, but in the future, hopefully we get to a point where we can identify fully as the, uh, the fungi-based meat alternative with such little processing that it, that's required. It's just all that counterintuitive sort of uh, proprietary methods that we use to make sure that it doesn't feel and taste like you're eating a mushroom. Although, you know, whenever you're eating it, that it is. So it's like, I don't know. You seem, it's kind of like a, a seamless progression of, of replicating meat. And I think we'll get to a point where we're cheaper than meat and we actually got better flavors than meat. So it'll be like such an easy option for people. If they've got the option between fable and, and meat, they might choose fable. Definitely. And I, I couldn't agree more with you there, Jim. I know like the, the plant-based realm and is growing so fast and not necessarily using labels, but people are opting for meat free options. And, Everyone now knows of someone that is not eating as much meat as they once were before, whether they're gone fully vegan or plant-based, or they're just trying to reduce their intake. And I guess it all starts Mm. from going to social gatherings or cooking food and incorporating products like Fable into the mix and getting the traditional people that rely heavily on animal products to try it. That's where it begins. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of this movement is progressing so fast because people are trying the right products and they're enjoying mm. the taste they're enjoying the texture they're enjoying the experience and it just goes yeah. to show that you know you can still enjoy that meat experience without the meat itself i love it yeah jim yeah. i'm interested 
to know what is actually exactly in the mix. We spoke about the mushrooms being a large component. What else goes into the Fable mixture to create this product if that's not a top secret recipe that you don't want to share? Well, it's not the recipe that's the top secret. The label is very clear uh, stated. And actually, uh, in a recent sort of series of Instagram posts, we've posted every ingredient and sort of a little history and a little reason why it's in Fable. Um, but yeah, I'd love to share what and why. So the hero ingredient, of course, is shiitake mushrooms. And we choose those because they're a very heavy and dense mushroom. You know, they, the, if you were to choose like a, a white button mushroom or an or, uh, oyster mushroom, they're, they're sort of more light and, and tender and fluffy. Uh, but, but these shiitake mushrooms are very hard and dense and hearty. So they provide a great sort of base for us to very sort of easily sort of tease the fibers apart and sort of fill them up with the other things that sort of replicate the structure of meat so that there's like intercellular fatty and proteiny components. And that's what you get whenever you eat a meat thing. You don't realize, you know, I'm putting in a complex to <laughs> matrix of, of proteins and fats and, and, and things like that, but th that's what it is. So at that level, it gives me a great platform to sort of put the right things in there to, to sit in between those fibers um, and taste right. So the, the sitting in between the fibers stuff is where we have our soy protein. So we use soy protein isolate. So it's not just like ground up soybeans. It's, it, this is probably the most processed portion of our, of our product. And that is because the, um, the protein is separated from the soybean. That's, that's it. That's as highly processed as we get because then we put that with a bit of uh, coconut oil that... Um, that they're blended together and they kind of sit in between the fibers and that's where you get your proteiny and fatty matrix, but you blend those together with the seasoning mixture, which is based on yeast extract. Yeast extract is a, um, another fungus. Yeast is a fungus and the cellular components of fungi are very full of amino acids, complex amino acid profiles and proteins that whenever you cook them, they actually become more meaty and they become more like the meat proteins and the meat amino acids. So this is why you find yeast extract in a lot of things and you call it umami or meaty. Uh, Vegemite's one of them. But if you think about Gravox, Gravox itself is uh, a beef gravy or beef jus. It's very popular here in Australia. That's basically... 99% yeast extract and 1% starch to gel it up. So there is no meat in there. It's vegan. If you want to go out and get, you know, gray box, it, it's a vegan beefy gravy, right? Um, so yeast extract is in there for its meaty amino acid profile. Then the rest of the stuff is kind of just there to sort of put the highlights on it. You got salt and sugar, which are, you know, it's the oldest spices on the planet. Um, wars have been fought and won for those things and paid for in salt. You know, whenever they talked about Roman soldiers being worth their salt, that's where it came from because that's what they were paid in. Are they worth their salt? Um, but those are there for just the highlights, you know, they, 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 they accentuate the right things the the, the little sweetness of meat and, and the seasoning just there to sort of the salinity to bind and bring all of the flavors together. And the other things would be white pepper and black pepper, 
not there for spice, but they're there for complexity and, uh, you know, range. So uh, I think, uh, did I cover it all? So you got shiitake, you've got yeast extract or uh, soy protein, uh, coconut oil, uh, yeast extract, uh, salt, sugar, white, black pepper, ah, tapioca starch. Tapioca starch um, essentially is, you know, a tapioca potato. That's what it is. It's a, it's a sweet potato. Um, and basically just dried down and powdered up. And why do we use that? Because the starch holds um, moisture, holds water, uh, more like a meat-type protein would. So a meat-type protein, it's, uh, the, the cells are composed of proteins, fats, um, and they've got a lot of water in there. Yeah. So when you cook them, well, the proteins do different things. They coil up in different ways. And if you cook them too hard, they bind and they seize and, and the meat gets dry and tough. Um, so we replicate a meat that's been cooked for a very long time. So it's gone past that dry, tough stage. And it's actually sort of the, the inter protein fibers and moisture has balanced out. And that's what we get. Fable, we get a uh, like a, a falling off the bone style type long cooked meat. Um, yeah, so those are those are the ingredients and the why. Um, and you know, uh, I think if you look at it uh, from the idea of you know, well, where's the claims that you're going to be able to make on all this, you know, health or protein or whatever. So the health claims against anything would be like if it's got sugar in it. So it does have that, and I. I mean, we, we're looking at, at ways to possibly go um, uh, a different style of uh, sweet plant-based something to, to put in there. But right now, uh, that little bit of sweetness we really feel it, it is required. And it's such a small amount. It's just there for a highlight. It's not there to actually make the product sweet. Um, and then another thing would be on the saturated fat, fat content because coconut, it is a high saturated fat. Um, I am on in the camp where it is fully required to be there to be a meat replacement because that's what we want. We want to replace meat and get people reducing their meat consumption so they're replacing it with this. So if we were to go in there and remove the saturated fat and replace it with a non-saturated fat, you don't get the same sort of succulence that you get. The, the mouth coating uh, fattiness that, that you get when you're eating a meat. And, and that's where I say we, we, we might lose people if it's just oily and not, not that succulent fattiness, you know? So what we want is people trying it, loving it. And we've created something that, that allows for that to happen, you know? And I mean, variants and analogs and new products, everything is, we're going with, you know, everything gluten-free, um, uh, allergen-free, all that stuff, trying to, to be there for as many people as possible and really being in that ethos of, as minimally, as minimally processed as possible, whole plant-based ingredients to provide the experience so that we can get as many people as possible. And I don't care what brush you paint them with. I, I just want humans eating this instead of meat. Yeah, definitely, Jim. It's, we spoke about the impacts that leaving animal products off your plate can have. And this is just a fantastic alternative for, for you know, incorporating those sort of meat-like experiences 
into your lifestyle without actually having meat itself. I love that. Now, Jim, I was immersed in the kind butcher a short while ago and watched the the fable arise through the ranks. And I've personally utilized this product in many different ways. I'm interested. What is your favorite way to use fable? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I explore it a lot because I'm in the dev kitchen and, um, you know, I go through lots of different iterations. I've had so many that were such an amazing result. Um, so I won't go through all of them. I'll say a couple of the highlights. One highlight has been trying it in a, a, a Greek uh, lamb style with lots of garlic and olive oil um, and then having it sort of... Uh, in Suvlaki with all the dips and, and the accoutrements, it just performed amazingly. It was as, as good as a Suvlaki as I've ever had. And I am a meat eater. This is the thing is I still eat meat and I'm still in love with the succulents of meat. And I, that's why I, I haven't divorced it. So whenever I feel like, you know, it's a great experience, it's because it actually is. It's a satisfying experience for a Texan carnivore meat eater you know it satisfies me on that level um and then another great one and this one is available now at like ribs and burgers is the barbecue brisket style um i say ribs and burgers the restaurant um barbecue brisket style so you basically just heat it up in a pan hit it with a little bit of uh like a, a tangy spicy thing like a worcestershire or an a1 or i can't an hp that's what you have here uh, just a little bit of that to give it that sort of smoky twang and then whatever barbecue you love. So if you love those vinegary peppery ones, you, cause you're, you know, Texan or married to one or they're one in your network like me, um, then that's what you would do. And then you'd have like a creamy type slaw with it, or you go the other way, you go like the sticky, sweet barbecue style. And then you put on like a really tangy vinegary type slaw, just cut through all that. And those, yeah, those, that's, that's my best, the best stuff I've ever tasted is when it's produced and like that. And, it, and it's not necessarily meant to be eaten on its own, even though it is good and you can, you can make it on its own and it's a replicant of meat. But I mean, whoever makes a roast and just eats the meat without anything else, like I said, when it went, when it came to barbecue, it's all about what you do with it. It's the sauce, it's the pickles, it's a bread, the everything. So you make it in the style that you're going to make it. What I love about Fable And this is something that we really want, I need to get people to understand is that it doesn't require hours of marinating and hours of cooking. You got, that's all there. It's, it's slow cooked already like that, that done for you. And all you got to do is if marinade is in your recipe, just chuck it in the pot with the fable and it's done in five minutes. You know, you finish off with whatever sauce you're going to finish off with and it's taken on that five hour cooking session already, you know? So if you're going to do like a fable beef stew, all you got to do is really cook whatever vegetables you're going to cook along with it. You don't have to do the long process of all that stuff, marrying into the flavor of the fable and it coming out. It, it does it on its own. Really all you're doing is catering to the vegetables and the sauce. The fable is ready for you to do whatever you want to do with it. Yeah, I absolutely couldn't agree more there, Jim. And it's so exciting watching this all unfold. And I can't wait to watch the future of mushrooms and see how that can impact our our planet. So thank you so much for sharing your insight today, Jim. I, I truly appreciate it. I'll have all the links for where you guys can purchase Fable and get in contact with Fable on social media. Um, yeah, is there anything else that you'd love to, to add, Jim, before we wrap it up? 
yeah, look, I mean, listeners, you can follow Fable Food Co. on Insta. I guess you're going to put those links in there, but uh, we're always updating. That's our probably most used site. We're dabbling in all the other ones, but yeah, uh, Fable Food Co. on Insta. And then uh, the website for Fable is fablefood.co. Um, yeah, and, and all our stories are up there. All this ingredient stuff is up there. We've got a merch shop. Like uh, You can't see it on the video, but I've got a Fable hat on, that kind of stuff. I just want people to try this stuff. I just want people to see it because that's, that's where anyone, if you taste it and it's, and it's even just cooked basically. Okay. It's going to be that eye opener that, you know, meat replacement is right here right now available. And fable is an amazing one. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. Thank you so much again. I'm um, really looking forward to, impacting the lives and and potentially impacting the food choices of many through this product so keep up the great work thanks matthew it's been great well friends if you made it to the end congratulations i really loved unpacking the science behind mushrooms with jim during this episode and like i said in the introduction it's so exciting that mushrooms can potentially be the resolution or part of the resolution in our climate crisis. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast, friends. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes, subscribe, leave a rating and review for the podcast. Have a fantastic weekend and I'll see you guys next time.